Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 12, Hammond, making an honest dozen episodes here on May 2nd, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, for the music we've got today. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Atom Age Vampire Cat in the Brain, and our outro is Hummingbird. On to our corrections. Upon further review by almost every analytic, no, Gremlins 2 The New Batch isn't the best. Also, apparently Joe Rogan and Dana White are different people. All this time I literally thought he was just the shaved or not shaved version of one person at any given time. Uh, But that was my mistake. I said that Malcolm was kicked by the Tyrannosaur in an earlier episode, but I think it was Grant who was kicked. And it was Malcolm was in fact lifted with its jaws, I think. And finally, a review of that, that comparison between the film and the novel that we did in the last episode. I want to evoke uh, the lesson that was taught to us by Paleo Joe in the episode New York earlier. Uh, I've always thought that the scene in Jurassic Park where that kid at the dig site confronts Alan Grant on whether or not a velociraptor was scary was dumb. And it was the most dumb and contrived moment in the film. But Paleo Joe was really good at explaining that A, volunteers are invaluable at a dig site. So it's not out of the question to have a random assortment of folks there to chip in. And B, when they've got an idea in their head, they're incredibly bold about their observations. So that scene holds way more water than I would have given it credit. So thanks to Joe for adding new layers to my viewing of Jurassic Park that I hadn't even considered before. Dinosaur News! Yamaceratops Juveniles, Pier J, published on April 5th in their Paleontology and Evolutionary Science section, the paper A New Juvenile Yamaceratops from the Javklant Formation of Mongolia, which describes a substantially complete and juvenile specimen, and is the first of its kind. The new specimen, MPC-D100-553, housed at the Institute of Paleontology in Mongolia, has a skull that's approximately two-thirds the size of the holotype, based on the mandibular length, which is estimated to belong to an animal about five feet in length. The diagnostic holotype is known from a partial skull, so to find an almost entirely articulated specimen to bolster science's understanding of this species is terrific. In this case, a new atopomorphy for Yamaceratops is described. Though it sounds awfully technical to make any sense in common language, uh, it involves things like an enteroventral margin of the fungiform dorsal end of a bone or a skull piece, or I don't know. Let it just be known that it that these differences are, are useful in identifying the animal for future discoveries. And this also provides a lot of new data for basal neoceratopsians as well. In total, there are 38 new scorings that were added into the recent comprehensive data matrix of basal neoceratopsia and placing the animal beside its sister taxon, the Euceratopsia, which is evolutionarily where the Leptoceratopsids and the Coronasauria split. So Yamaceratops becomes the most basal Neoceratopsian with a broad, thin frill and hyper-elongated middle caudal neural spines, while still being bipedal. There you go. Yamaceratops was named in 2006 after the Hindu god of death, Yama, and Ceratops means horn face, the, the specific name is Dornogovi, which refers to an eastern Gobi province, Dornogovi Ameg, making this Yama's horn face from the Dornogovi Ameg. 
or AMAG, who knows. It's believed to have been about a five-foot-long herbivore from the Santonian period of the late Cretaceous, discovered in the Mongolian Gobi Desert. Neoceratopsians are known for showing signs of the first development of a neck frill and the fusion of the first several neck vertebrae to support an increasingly heavy head. As a ceratopsian, its head would have been large relative to its body size, with a snout likely covered in a beak. Their hands and feet had five toes and fingers, as well as they were bird-hipped. In other news, a new dromaeosaurid dinosaur from the Wessex Formation of the Isle of Wight has implications for European paleobiogeography. Uh, published in Cretaceous Research in June 2022, the paper A New Dromaeosaurid Dinosaur from the Wessex Formation of the Isle of Wight and Implications of European Paleobiogeography is available. England's late Cretaceous deposits have revealed lots of different types of dinosaurs ranging from ornithischians to sauropods and theropods, but how this assemblage came together is poorly understood until now. The authors describe a new dromaeosaurid Vectoraptor greeneye of the Beremian found in the Wessex Formation of the Isle of Wight. The holotype IWCMS, housed at the Isle of Wight County Museum Service, was uncovered from the Wessex Formation, of course. It's comprised of two dorsal vertebrae and a partial sacrum, or sacrum. Known from short and distinctive dorsal vertebrae and a partial sacrum, these elements align it with the Dromaeosauridae family, and more specifically the Eudromaeosauria, which are known for having larger bodies than the, the, the aforementioned dromaeosauridae. It resembles other known eudromaeosaurs from North America, suggesting that there's a faunal exchange between Europe and North America before the Baremian. As eudromaeosaurians, they were relatively large-bodied, feathered, hypercarnivores with diets consisting almost entirely of other terrestrial vertebrates that flourished in the Cretaceous period. They were located almost exclusively from the Northern Hemisphere and first appeared in the early Cretaceous period, surviving until the end Cretaceous extinction. Of course, that made them dromaeosaurids, which had large skulls, serrated teeth, narrow snouts, forward-facing eyes, S-curved necks, short and deep trunks, long arms that could be folded against the body, large hands with three long fingers, the middle finger the longest, the first finger the shortest, and a large pubic foot projecting beneath the base of the tail. And dromaeosaurs are best known for the large recurved claw on the second toe, and their tails were slender with rod-like extensions and bony tendons in some species. They likely had large veined wing and tail feathers, and their sickle-shaped claws were held off the ground when walking, likely used to capture prey. And furthermore, the paper suggests the diverse early Cretaceous dinosaur assemblage found in England and Europe resulted from dispersal from North America, and dispersal from Asia, and dispersal from West Gondwana, likely involving land bridges and oceanic dispersals. They believe Europe served as like a biotic crossroads in the early Cretaceous, allowing faunal interchange between land masses. And this is even before Heathrow Airport, so pretty good. And with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. <laughs> my guest for this episode I met back in 2012. And only after I sort of put him in a bit of a spot, and then surgeons were required to get him out of there. And once they did, they jiggled him around so that I could see him. And then they sang him happy birthday. And then they wiped him down and I had to take off my shirt and hug him for a few hours. It's Sullivan Rogers. How are you? I'm good. Yeah? <laughs> so, here we go. Um, so thanks for joining me today. Unlike, unlike almost all of my other guests, you're one of the few people who volunteered to come onto the podcast with me. What, what makes you want to be on the podcast with me? Well, I have read the junior novelization. Yes, you have. <laughs> but I think you wanted to be on the podcast before you read the book. Why, uh, why did you want to read the book? 
since I did want to be on the podcast. Okay, so why did you want to be on the podcast then? Well, I thought it was pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting. Do I look like I'm very interested in it? You pr- work pretty hard on those episodes, yeah. right? What does it look like when uh, when I'm working hard at it? Do I look like I'm having fun or look like I'm angry? What? I don't know. Something in between? <laughs> in between? <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm having fun. I look angry sometimes when I'm making the podcast? I mean, sometimes when you do something wrong. I mean, do you do anything wrong? Yeah, do I do anything wrong? Well, that's a, that's a philosophical question. Um, <laughs> no, I guess not. I mean... Wrong is in the eye of the beholder and such. How about you? Do you do anything wrong? <laughs> well, of course not. I mean, I don't even work on your podcast. Yeah, how could you screw up a podcast when you haven't even been on it yet? Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, so you wanted it, it looks. It looked like fun and interesting to be on the podcast. Is it what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. And was there anything that looked fun or interesting about the podcast? Well, the, there is a couple things like about the chapters that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. It's some really good things that are happening throughout the book. Really exciting moments. You made this podcast because of this, right? You're talking about Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we have, instead of Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, we have, you went and, and read, uh, not Michael Crichton's 1991 bestseller, but uh, Jurassic Park, the junior novelization with color photos from the movie. Adapted by Gail Herman, who is a children's author of books like what is a Stanley Cup? And what is the World Series? And things of that nature. So you got to read the junior novelization. You said there were some interesting parts. This takes after the film quite closely. Tell me, what did you think? It didn't take you too long. We only a couple days to go through the book, right? I mean, only like two, I guess. Only two days. So it's a quick read is what they call that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so there were some interesting scenes that you liked in the book. Tell me, what are the things that stick out in your mind? Try not to wiggle too much. What are some of the things that stick out in your mind that are the most memorable and interesting parts of the junior novelization that you liked? Well, I kind of liked it when there was stuff like that those big fights with the dinosaurs and the when Mr. DNA was talking. In the book, yeah, Mr. DNA has a little moment. So that... That part was interesting. What else did you like about that scene? Well, I kind of like... It was a little weird that they mixed frog DNA. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Almost because they wanted to bring the dinosaurs to life. Dinosaurs are more like lizards. Mm-hmm. And not close to amphibians or any sort. That's right. So they should not have used frogs? <laughs> Maybe they sh- Do you think that lizards have blood? <laughs> yes. I do. Uh, okay, so you think maybe they should have used a lizard's DNA instead of a frog's DNA when they were cloning the dinosaurs, and that would have probably sol- solved the problems they were having. Or a snake's DNA, or because snake. they're quite vicious. Okay. All right. What would a, a snake-like dinosaur be like? I mean, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost like the Dilophosaurus, like some snakes are poisonous, and it mm-hmm. shoots poisonous spit. That's true. That was true in the book, yeah. That would be very interesting, wouldn't it? Do you think, do snakes spit? I don't think so, but they're poisonous. (laughs) That's right. That's interesting. Well, I'm glad you like, so the Dilophosaurus you really liked, you like Mr. DNA. Uh, Those are good parts of the book, for sure. Um, And they were big parts of the film as well. So in this episode uh, of the podcast, we are meeting John Hammond for the first time. 
What do you remember about meeting John Hammond in the junior novelization? Did you like the character John Hammond? Yeah, I liked him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was more than... He's almost like the main character, like Alan Grant or Tim and Lexa or some sort. Mm-hmm. And he did in, invent Jurassic Park. That's right. So I could see what kids can see dinosaurs in, like, in real life. That's kind of nice of him, wasn't it? Yeah. So when the kids got to see dinosaurs in real life in the book, was it good or bad? It helps the kids learn, so it must be good. I guess so. So the kids got to learn about dinosaurs firsthand. That's a, that's an interesting way to build. But what at happened. least it was, if it were the carnivores, they should be in electric fences. Yeah, they should have but been. But since it shut off, they should mm-hmm. really be out of there. Yeah. <laughs> but not like that. Tim and Lex were still in, were like lost in Jurassic Park. That's right. That's right. In your opinion, did they the kids enjoy meeting the dinosaurs? Well, they enjoy seeing the dinosaurs mm-hmm. and like 3D. Yeah. I mean, like, if it were the film, yeah, it would just be random mechanics and robots or some sort. Because mm. they're not really real. They didn't really use frog DNA because it's just robots. They just said it. Right. They could have used a robot frog for the extra parts instead of, <laughs> instead of frog DNA. Good, That's good right. Good one. Good one. Good one. All right. <laughs> all right i'm trying to say uh, the kids had to run and hide from the dinosaurs and they were chased uh by dinosaurs trying to eat them i was trying to uh, i guess impress the fact that um they probably did not have a good time even though john hammond their grandfather said hey let's build this wonderful park it'll be for kids kids are gonna love it did the kids love the park what did you think well if i visited jurassic park yeah. i would think it was pretty interesting yeah but the dinosaurs got out and they chased and tried to eat them then I would already, then I would want to be out of there, right out of there. Yeah, <laughs> what, what vehicle would you take to get right off of Jurassic Park? Well, I would just take a Jeep, take a Jeep and just head down to the ferry of some sort. Take a Jeep to the ferry? And then it'll just float me back here. It <laughs> floats back to Ontario. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, I don't think being chased by dinosaurs would be very much fun. So did you like John Hammond, the grandfather, the the guy who designed the park, the guy who made the dream come true? Did you like him? Was he all right? Pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alan Grant would be would have been my favorite character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, forget about John Hammond. All right. Tell me about why you liked Alan Grant. I like him, too. Well, he's pretty smart. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he made a book about birds and dinosaurs. That's right. He was an author of a book. That's true. And he did protect Tim and Lex. That's right. But at that time, he was trying to save Tim from that electric fence. Yeah, that electric fence is really stuck in your head, eh? Did you like that part? Oh, no. Because <laughs> that would really scare me. But if it were the movie... Ah! <laughs> yeah, that's right. Timmy, a little piece of toast. What is the line? The human piece of toast? Little Big Tim, piece. the human piece of toast. <laughs> They did the human piece of toast. So I know that you have grown up a with the aspirations to be like Bruce Wayne because of all the perks that come with being Bruce Wayne. So he he's one of those billionaires who has the capacity to perhaps build a dinosaur theme park. Do you think if Batman or Bruce Wayne were to design Jurassic Park that it would have been much different? Well, 
I think you really got me on that one. It's a tough one, eh? Yeah. Well, I don't know. So Bruce, so like, I don't know that John Hammond was actually a very rich person or not. He, um, he, he was able to raise a lot of capital and that's how he did the park. But it didn't sound like that he was independently wealthy to begin with. It doesn't sound like he had the hundreds of millions of dollars to just invest in making a theme park. He had to get, um, a Japanese consortia to, to give him all of the money to launch InGen. So that being said, Batman is independently wealthy. He's got billions of dollars. He could, if he has multiple billion dollars, multiple billions of dollars, he could spare $800 million to launch Jurassic Park and still have a billion dollars in the bank. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it just begs the question. If, um, if Batman had spent more time trying to bring cloned dinosaurs back from extinction, um, I mean, there would be less crime fighting in, in, in Gotham City, but... It could make for an interesting park. What kind of a park do you think Bruce Wayne would have built? Well, we are talking more about Jurassic Park. Now let's stick with that one. <laughs> <laughs> so there are lots of dinosaurs in the book. Which ones do you picture most vividly when you were reading along? Well, I usually see the raptors. Yeah. What makes you remember the raptors very clearly about from the book? Well, they're really they're really fierce and they're real scavengers, looking for food. Mm -hmm. But the only prey they can see in the last part of the, of the story, they were hunting on the people on the humans. Mm -hmm. You know, Alan, Ellie, Tim, Lex. Yes. Followed them into the, the visitor center and followed them into the kitchen. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. when Tim and Lex had to hide from them, right? Yeah. Yeah, that must have been my favorite part. That was your favorite part in the kitchen? Yeah. What would you do if you were alone in the kitchen and a velociraptor walked in? Would you be able to, to solve the problem and set a trap? Or do you think you'd just be cooked up and eaten? Well, I would. I think I would adapt really Clearly. Yeah? You make a plan? Yeah, I would make a plan. Okay. Maybe make a trap out of the kitchen tools and the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess if you had lots of pots and pans, if you if you banged them really loud, I bet you the velociraptors are like, that's annoying, and they'd leave. <laughs> I know. Cling, cling, ping, ping, bong, bong. Yeah, I think that's what I would have done. I don't know what else. Other than that, I'd just get eaten. And not a lot of choices. <laughs> I think I'd try and make as much noise as I could. And maybe keep one of those pans and try and use it as a, a baton or something. And maybe I could hit them. But I don't know. How... Yeah. But what about this? Yeah. What if the raptors thought, maybe it was you. Maybe I'm attracting them. Okay. Then what if I use those tools and just wrap them out of them? Like you're luring them over with like a yoo-hoo. Like what do you mean you're attracting them? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> all the noise they can oh okay they could hear pretty clear so you think my they plan to hear... bang pots and pans to scare them away would actually draw more velociraptors actually bring the velociraptors to me and if it happened i would just throw the, those pots and pans at them and maybe they'll then they'll just scatter out of there because they think that i'm beating them up uh yes the illusion of beating them up would be a very useful strategy okay Bong! <laughs> <laughs> All right. See, I, I guess that would work, but then they would still be outside waiting for you. But 
that that's I guess why you would run to the control room and then turn on the power, right? Yeah. Mm. But mm. still, when Alan and Tim and Lex were outside. So, so when Alan and and Ellie rescue Tim and Lex from the kitchen, they run to the control center. They turn on the computer. Uh, they get the systems back up and running, and then they the Velociraptor comes into the control room. What do they do? How do they get away from the Velociraptor in the control room? Well, they just hogged the door. They what? They what? They hogged the door. They just tried to keep the door shut so the Velociraptors wouldn't get in. But they broke through the glass. They had to climb up into the ceiling to run away. Would you have thought of that? <laughs> that would be really, really dangerous. Yeah. I don't know if I'd fit up in a ceiling or not. Yeah. But they got lucky. They did fit up in the ceiling. And they did get lucky that they escaped from Jurassic Park. Yes. Yeah. And all the dinosaurs would still be there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, And then, bye-bye Jurassic Park. <laughs> so, you... So, Tim and Lex are, are listed as 9 and 12 years old, and you are how old? 10. Gee, I should have known that, right? <laughs> <laughs> you said that they bought, you popped me out of 2012. That's right. I could have done the math and figured that out. I didn't pop you out of 2012. Surgeons did that. So if you were alone with uh, with a man that you just met running around a park being chased by wild animals at, at your age, can you can you even imagine that? Or is it just an adventure that somebody else does and it's no biggie? I see. It's a pretty big adventure, though. Mm-hmm. It would be a big adventure, that's for sure. I can't, I, you know, I'm trying to think of a time where in my life I was ever... Confronted with an animal that was, uh, I was actually in danger. And I don't know, it would have been like only a horse or cow. I can't think of any time where like I was actually like, uh oh, this could be trouble. I suppose that's not true. There are some pretty big dogs that have, uh, given me the, how about you just stay over there look before. <laughs> Anyhow, being, being confronted by even something just the size of a dog is pretty, pretty, pretty tough. And these velociraptors are as big as leopards. You, you've been scared of dogs before, right? Yeah, of course. I've been scared of all the dogs who were off of leashes. Mm-hmm. They could go chase me around since I'm full of cat fur. Yeah, you are. We have a cat, and a uh, cat chases us, or gets its hair on us, doesn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Would you feed <laughs> Would you feed Indy to a dinosaur to escape? Uh, no. No? No, 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 no. You hang on, Indy? Yeah. But she would be at home. You could be on. I don't think the cat listens to the podcast. You could be for real about this. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Would I feed the cat to a dinosaur to live? Hmm. Well, this isn't a podcast about ethics. It's. Just... <laughs> I know. It's I would... a podcast about Jurassic Park. Yeah, and right. should we stick to this? Get back on track. Yeah, keeping back on track. Be- for the second time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you said that you wanted to be on the podcast and that you're going to read the junior novelization of the movie, I said, well, hey, would you also like to watch the movie again? Well, it was pretty scary. Yeah. Because I didn't really read the book. He didn't really read the book, and then I was a pretty afraid of dinosaurs when I watched Jurassic Park when I was like four or two years old. You you were two. And of course I would be four. I don't think you were four either. Um, well, I knew it, it happened when I was really young. Which I think we were watching Dinosaur Train, and 
and I think you got into dinosaurs. And this was wonderful because because you got back into dinosaurs uh, through Dinosaur Train, I said, well, hey, if you're into it, I'll start looking back into dinosaurs too. And that would be just when you were going into beavers for the first time, I think, right around then. I think so. Yeah. So what, how old is that? That was four years ago? Uh, that would have been uh, like four years ago when I was in Beavers and six years ago when I kind of like watched the movie. Right. So you would have been like six or something like that. So that's not four. Although six is still pretty young to, uh, to, uh, yeah, <laughs> to watch Jurassic like Park. Yeah, I didn't like dinosaurs like when I was for like two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually watching Jurassic Park did kind of get you out of the dinosaur phase for a little but, bit. And then just in, but just that moment when I... When you let me watch The Lost World, I kind of mm-hmm. liked it. I kind of liked it. Yeah. But I think you, I was watching Jurassic World before that. You said Jurassic World. Okay, here we go. So you like The Lost World. Yeah. What did you like about that one? Well, The Lost World. That's the one where they go to the island and there's two Tyrannosauruses. And and the Tyrannosaurus comes back with them. And there's I... the Stegosaurus. And the Tyrannosaurus runs through San Diego. Yeah. Yeah, and the funniest part was when it was going in that backyard. Yeah. Everybody said, there's a dinosaur in the backyard. And the parents went out and said, there's no such thing as dinosaurs. Woo! <laughs> yeah, they were pretty startled, weren't they? Yeah, even the dog was startled. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, because there was a, do- a dog house that the Tyrannosaurus was going for. Yeah, he came out to bark at the Tyrannosaur, and then... The Tyrannosaurus got angry. Right? It ate the dog. So, yeah, it was pretty scary. <laughs> so, you like the, the second Jurassic, the, the Lost World. Did you see the one with the Spinosaurus? Oh, yeah, Jurassic World, Jurassic Park 3, right? Mm-hmm. So, did you like that one? Was that one too scary or was it okay? Pretty good. Yeah, it had the pteranodons and it had more velociraptors in it. <coughs> yeah. Okay, and so you like that one? Huh? Then we did Jurassic World. Who was in that one? Well, that's like, that's pretty much seven years ago. Mm-hmm. You haven't seen it since? It had the Indominus Rex. Do you remember that one? Indominus Rex. So that dinosaur that hasn't been invented for a long time. Mm-hmm. They invented the dinosaur, that's right. Yeah. And just when they came to see it, it might have, like, escaped in Jurassic World. Mm-hmm. Well, the first scene wasn't really in Jurassic World. It was just like... Two kids who are just going off to on a train to Jurassic World. Mm-hmm. And then there they are in the hotel. Yeah. That's that's the one. And then the Indominus gets out. Uh-huh. It beats everybody up. Uh-huh. Okay. So you remember, did you remember liking that one? Uh-huh. So what's with the first one? Why are you so worried about that first Jurassic Park? Because I was younger. Okay, but you still don't want to watch it now. You're still pretty, pretty I mean, leery of it. Maybe you get into watching it like in a couple days okay in a couple days okay you gotta steal your nerve before you can watch it again what made watching the first movie what part of it was um the most unnerving for you you said there were, it was pretty spooky so it was pretty spooky i mean the tyrannus i mean like the, the raptors are eating everybody <laughs> yeah and the dilophosaurus sp- spitting out poisonous Mucus? Yeah, you thought it was going to be fun, and then the thing, things got pretty serious real quick when he uh, <laughs> decided he was going to 
eat Dennis Nedry, didn't it? Uh-huh. Right on. But not that. Muldoon wasn't afraid. Nope, he was a pretty brave guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he just got out his pretty big gun and he just started... Bing, 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 bing. I'm trying to think. Do we, do we even get to see him shoot a gun or not? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Where, where did all those bang, bang, bangs come from then? The gun. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. So the first film, what, what is it about Jurassic Park that spooks you out that you still aren't sure that you want to watch it? Can you? Re- is there anything in, in particular like, oh, I just, I'm not ready to watch that again? That you- well, so the part when we stopped was when Tim puked. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I threw up. Don't tell anybody. Okay, I won't tell anybody. And that was in the book, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was in the book. What's your favorite dinosaur? Well, Dilophosaurus, of course. Dilophosaurus? I mean, I found it pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and how it defends itself. Like the poisonous mucus. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that was for hunting, that wasn't for defense. But the frill could have been for defending itself, sure. Yeah. It warns dinosaurs to go away because he's fierce. Yeah. That's your favorite dinosaur in the book. But I mean, in, in general, what's your favorite dinosaur? Well, of course. Again, Dilophosaurus. Really? Mm-hmm. See, I thought you would have said one of two other things. One is a Permian reptile with a sail on its back. Of course, it would be Dimetrodon, but yeah. that would, that's a Permian dinosaur. But I'm talking about the uh, Mesozoic era. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the Permian era. That's true, that's true. Uh, my mistake. I heard in the next film they're going to put in the Dimetrodon. That could be fun. I know. <laughs> and it would be more of a Permian di- dinosaur. Yeah, that's right. Some people thought it was a Triassic dinosaur. Yes. What do you like about Dimetrodon? Why is he cool? Well, he's the only carnivore with who's a quadruped. <sighs> yeah, I can't think of too many other quadrupedal carnivores or theropods. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it kind of makes him unique. That's a good way to put it, yeah. That's what you like, the just that he was four-legged? Not like that. He had that spine on his back. Yeah, that's cool like too. Spinosaurus. One of the coolest things about Demetrodon is that whenever there's paleo art, they always have the sun shining through that sail, and so it looks like he's lit up like a lampshade or something like that with a wonderful contrast. And so the artwork with a, that Demetrodon sail it does so many amazing things to make it look like it's very moody, which they don't do with other dinosaurs so much. So Dimetrodon has definitely got that going for it. People like to paint it very, very nicely. Okay. So he's an easy one to like. The other other dinosaur I thought you would have said, other than Dilophosaurus, was another dinosaur that has a sail. Long spines on its on its neck. Herbivore? Yeah. Can you think of a herbivorous animal with spines on its neck? That's almost like an Amargosaurus. Yes, the Amargosaurus. What do you like about that one? That used to be your favorite. I don't know why you weren't telling anybody that. Well, it had that spine on his on its neck. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty smaller than pretty much all of the other sauropods. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't a very big sauropod, but it had a cool neck. Yeah. Like the Aeropasaurus. I mean, that that's almost like the smallest one. Is it? Yeah, because it's pretty big, but not as big as the Argentinosaurus. Right, that's or true. Or the Sauroposidon. Amargosaurus is super cool. I'm glad that you mentioned it. 
<laughs> so I like novelizations. I thought this was special uh, because it um, it does a neat job. Sometimes the authors give you I don't know where they adapt it from. If it's out of the they just watch the movie and then they retell it, or if they get a version of the working script and they adapt it from there. Let I don't me know. see what year it was printed in. Because what I year? know that the movie was made in 1994, right? Uh, the movie was in 93. So what I like about it is that the author will give a different description of a scene that you already know. from remember like maybe... the theater we went to? Do I remember? It said that the Jurassic Park movie was made in 1994. Yeah, that's right. I hated that. That was a trivia question. We watched Sonic the Hedgehog 2 and... The trivia questions at the beginning of the... Uh, While well, we were all sitting there, so what year did Jurassic Park come out? And the answer was, like, A, 1994. Which, I mean... I, makes me upset. What I like about novelizations is they give you a different look at some scenes. And they're described a little differently, perhaps even adapted from an earlier draft of the script. Or it may include some deleted scenes or something like that. But nonetheless, there are a few omissions from the novel. Uh, there was no Dr. Henry Wu. He's not in this junior novelization. And most of... Ian Malcolm's wonderful quotes that were almost all lifted and put into the film right from the book because they are so good are derived down to just the following. Quote, This park won't work because of chaos theory. In the end, everything is unpredictable. And then he also says the line, Life always finds a way. So they've bothered to include some of his stuff, but they've taken all the magic away from Ian Malcolm, <laughs> which was really disappointing. There's some neat additions, additions including... Ellie wondering, after Grant tortures that kid at the dig site, if they could have a future together if Grant continues to detest children so much on page six, which is a characteristic that wasn't especially well presented in the film, and it was obviously non-existent in the novel, because Grant is a widower and Ellie is engaged to a nice fella in Chicago. The veterinarian Dr. Harding is given a name. His name's Jerry, and we're told that on page 30. He's Jerry with a G, like a Gerald. Uh, not with a J, like a Seinfeld. Uh, while spending the night up in the trees in the park, Grant, Lex, and Tim are met by the Brachiosaurus, and Grant is listening to them vocalizing, which is in the film, but in his mind, he's wondering why they sound like they're making mating calls. And that's on page 60, which, I mean, we'll have to go and rewatch the original film and see if Sam Neill is acting as if he's wondering if he's listening to mating calls or not. I don't know if he's playing it that way or not. But nonetheless, this would have made for a very interesting segue to him discovering the raptor eggshells right afterwards. Why would the dinosaurs, if they're all female, be making mating calls? Was a good, uh, good question. On page 73, you want to look it up? Do you have the book there? Well, it's right here. Find page 73. There is a typo. And I love finding these in other people's work because then I don't feel so bad when I make typos myself. And it makes me feel like I'm still a very good proofreader. Anyhow, Muldoon says, gotcha. About to pull to pull the trigger is what it says. I have it marked at the bottom there. You see it? About to pull to pull the trigger. Typo. I love finding that stuff. And the finding, final uh, scene at the end where the Tyrannosaurus is thrashing the Velociraptors in the visitor center's front foyer, Grant takes a moment to watch the dinosaur topple the skeleton, and he thinks to himself, nothing can compare to the real thing. So the dinosaur, the tyrannosaur, is standing strong as the, the skeletal depiction of the tyrannosaur comes crashing down around it. And Grant says, wow, seeing these animals in the flesh has been unmatched. There, there's nothing better than that. But just that final line, nothing can compare to the real thing. Nothing. I really like that.
It's a wonderful little part. So I thought the junior novelization offered a couple of little insights that were a little different than uh, I would have interpreted out of the movie if I had watched it again. So those are good. Do you have any questions about the book that you were wondering about? Anything after you've read it, go, hmm, I wonder about that. I mean, why did they just climb the electric fence? I mean, why didn't they dig a hole? Because the electricity would have gone on. Gone, gone under the fence. You know, <sighs> they could just dig in there. Well, digging is really hard. And you have to dig a pretty big hole when you could just climb over it. But I guess they could have dug under it. Why not? <laughs> okay, that's a good that's a good point. But the power wasn't on. They thought they could go over. Too bad the security cameras weren't on because they couldn't have saw them. Yeah. They turned the power on before after they climbed the fence. Yeah. So I just had a, I was just thinking about the security cameras myself. Uh, so they can't be seen on the security camera because the power's out. That's why yeah. they can't use the security camera. But before the power goes out, they discover that the dinosaurs are breeding in the park. They discover that there are lots and lots more compies and more raptors. And the, the motion sensors and the cameras track and tally each of the animals. That's how the count is performed. So they should be able to know exactly where all the animals were because the motion sensors picked them all up. So there, there should have been no question as to where the nest was which is a big problem in the not a problem in the book, but a question in the book. They have to deduce where the nest is, but they should be able to tell exactly where the nest is by using the motion sensors. Because the motion sensors did pick up and tally all of the velociraptors, or it didn't, and there are actually even more undocumented animals that were beyond where the motion sensors could pick them up. Underground, I think they were in an underground parking garage or a pumping station or something like that. Thank you, yeah, I was wondering about the motion sensors as well. It made me think, hmm. They should be. They should have a lot more answers about what's going on in the park by because the because the motion sensors do work. What do you think would happen if it was instead of the Velociraptors, the Dilophosaurus was chasing them in the kitchen? Well, would that have been cool? Why that would have been scary if Michael Crichton written that in the novel. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think yeah, two big Dilophosaurus coming into the kitchen after them would have been pretty neat. All right. Did you have fun coming on the podcast? Has it been everything you hoped it would be? Pretty much. Yeah? Is there anything that you wanted to do on the podcast that we have not yet done? I don't think so. No? All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Would you like to come back and talk about the Jurassic Park novel again? Do you want to read the real novel? Do you want to see the movie again? Um, maybe I do. Okay. All right. And you'll come back then? Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being a guest and joining me and for volunteering to be a part the podcast it's wonderful thanks all right see you dude see ya how do you like that what a good interview i'm glad to have sullivan join me today isn't that special uh the text this week is hammond spanning from pages 58 to 62 in a synopsis Gennaro represents the investors for hammond's resort who are worried that they will be financially and perhaps criminally liable for, for problems at the resort. So, Gennaro has been instructed to lead a safety inspection by consultants to ensure the resort is safe. Gennaro is instructed to pull the plug at the slightest provocation. We learn that Gennaro was integral to Hammond's capital campaign entitled The Pachyderm Portfolio in raising the funds necessary to make Hammond's dream a reality. The dream was highly speculative, unlikely to succeed, but Hammond in fact tells Gennaro, yes, they've achieved the impossible and they're going to make a fortune. 
In, in terms of plot points, Gennaro, under no uncertain terms, is instructed to cut their losses, though significant, if there's a single problem with the island. Screw Hammond, he's specifically told. Characters. We have Gennaro's secretary, formerly servant to Mr. Gennaro, on page 58. She can sense that Donald doesn't really want to be going out of town. She's bought Donald everything he'll need to go on this trip, and it's all new stuff, including luggage, clothing, shoes, and a shaving kit. Uh, and he didn't have time to pack. She literally went out to the store and packed all this stuff for him. Donald Gennaro, called Mr. Gennaro by his own secretary, uh, this safety inspection is important enough to miss his daughter's fourth birthday. He's unhappy he'll be going out of town. He's in a rush to catch his flight. Gennaro's marching orders straight, quote, from the top. One of the firm's title partners, Dan Ross, expressly says, if there's a single problem, burn it to the ground, on page 58. Gennaro appears to feel some personal pride of, or ownership, or a personal stake, for pride's sake, perhaps, in Hammond's island resort, because he was so closely involved with the fundraising and marketing of Hammond's dream. Gennaro finds Hammond, quote, evasive, on page 60. He's impressed with the strides that Hammond has made in the quiet few years that have passed since they last spoke. Many more animals than he'd expected. The facilities, the computers, he's impressed that everything is in place. And that's on page uh, 61. That's incredible. That's fantastic, he says. Gennaro has successfully been wooed by Hammond. Hammond literally tells him three people died and there were several accidents, but quote, everything's perfectly fine on 62. When three people are dead at your workplace, that's not the definition of perfectly fine, but Gennaro accepts it because the resort sounds incredible and fantastic. Amanda Gennaro, uh, that's the daughter of Donald, and we're to believe that she's four years old uh, as there is a party of screaming four-year-olds on page 58, and it's been five years since Gennaro and Hammond have met, and this is the first time that he's told Hammond that he now has a daughter, another sign that she's turning four. So she's... Not that that's all important, but there you go. Elizabeth Gennaro, Donald's wife, who's planned Amanda's birthday party to include Cappy the Clown and a magician. And she's unhappy Donald's going to be out of town. Dan Ross, another of the partners at Cowan, Swain, and Ross. This one sees Gennaro leaving for the site inspection and leaves the boardroom table to ensure that Gennaro knows, under no uncertain circumstances, let's be very clear about one thing. I don't know how bad this situation actually is, Donald. But if there's a problem on that island... Burn it to the ground. And then we finally meet John Alfred Hammond. John A. Hammond. He's childlike, has a raspy voice, and he's short. When he sits, his feet don't touch the floor, and he swings them on page 59. Gennaro's uncertain, but Hammond must be almost 76 years old now. And please note, he's confirmed to be 76 on page 391, and he's further qualified to be almost 77 on page 198. He's wearing a sport coat with a red silk handkerchief in his breast pocket, and he tugs on his hanky when he's uncomfortable. Hammond is flamboyant, a born showman, according to Gennaro. Hammond is a showman, a salesman, a manipulator, who works hard to be endearing to build in an emotional connection by calling Gennaro, my boy, my boy, and then inquiring about his lovely wife and lamented that you never call anymore on page 59. Hammond had sold investors on the potential of a genetics company, with the pachyderm portfolio beginning in 1983. The little elephant worried him that it may die of infection or illness before Atherton could grow a replacement on page 60. We don't hear that Hammond was concerned that Atherton had terminal cancer, though. He is evasive on page 60, and he ignores the fact that Gennaro's law firm had forced this trip on him, and he's restructured this to appear as a purely social outing, going as far as to say, it's too bad you didn't bring your family, Donald. Hammond's impatient that this inspection means everything has to be stopped 
for the official visit, and they're on a very tight timeline. <clears throat> timeline. They must be open by next September, we're told on page 61. Hemmen believes the, quote, secret to making, quote, lots and lots of money is to, quote, limit your personnel costs. The food handlers, ticket takers, cleanup crews, repair teams, to make a park that runs with minimal staff. That's the trick. That was why they invested in all the computer technology. They automated wherever they could. That's on page 62. He downplays the snags with the animals and computers to Gennaro as a, quote, normal startup delay on page 62. There have been several accidents and a total of three deaths, Hammond says. Norman Atherton. Norm Atherton was a Stanford geneticist and Hammond's partner in the founding of InGen. The elephant was grown by Atherton in his lab by taking a dwarf elephant embryo and raising it in an artificial womb with hormonal modifications. Impressive, yes, but not what Hammond had implied by being done genetically on pages 59 and 60. Also, it's got to be known, he's got terminal cancer. The Pachyderm Portfolio. This was a campaign to raise capital running from September 1983 to November 1985, which raised $870 million in venture capital to found the International Genetics Technologies, Inc. In 1983, Hammond had a nine-inch high elephant that was a foot long, perfectly formed, but for its stunted tusks, and he carried it in a birdcage to fundraising meetings to extol the possibilities of genetic engineering. The elephant was a coup de grace in his fundraising speech on consumer biologicals, when a cover would be whipped away in a dramatic moment to reveal the elephant and ask for money. But the pitch was based on a series of untruths. For example, Hammond was starting a genetics company, but the elephant wasn't the result of a genetics procedure. It was a dwarf elephant embryo created with hormonal modifications. And more problematically, Atherton had been unable to reproduce his results. As well, the animal's behavior was something out of Pet Cemetery, spelled with an S, just the way Stephen King wants it to be, having it changed substantially during miniaturization, acting like a vicious rodent. Finally, the brains behind the whole project, Norm Atherton, had terminal cancer, which Hammond made sure nobody knew about. Hammond's pitch ended with a promise of $7 billion in annual revenues by 1993, only 10 years out. We have some localities. There's the Gulf Stream 2, Hammond's private jet. Uh, it has padded leather seats, so you know it's nice. It's flying east from California towards the Rocky Mountains, which is where they're heading to Chateau, where Ellie and Grant will meet them, and it has carpeted floors. Hammond's Resort. Hammond says Gennaro's daughter would get a kick out of it, the new park, because she's a kid. The park isn't officially ready for visitors, but the hotel is built, so there's a place to stay. There are 238 animals, herds of animals, on the island, blowing way past the original goal of 12 animals. The initial concept for the resort was to make the most advanced amusement park in the world, on page 61, he says. Beyond rides and animatronic environments, the haunted house, the pirate den, the wild west, the earthquake, we set out to make, quote, biological attractions, living attractions, attractions so astonishing they would capture the imagination of the entire world. Remember, he calls this consumer biologicals in his pitch meetings, the future of biotech. And we can never forget the ultimate object of the project in Costa Rica, to make money, Hammond said, staring at the window of the jet. Lots and lots of money. But there have been a few snags with the animals and computers, as would be expected. And finally, Chateau, the Montana locality where the fancy Gulfstream 2 will arrive to pick up her passengers. 
uh, we have some allusions and references. The Wild West on page 61 amusement park that features rides like, quote, everyone has, including Cody Island, isn't necessarily an illusion as it's hardly pointed out signaling for a deeper reading, but it's worth mentioning that Michael Crichton has done this problematic, flawed theme park gone awry concept before in his film Westworld, where there were animatronic environments, androids, and a whole Wild West motif that goes horribly wrong. Twice, once in the 70s, and it was done again for HBO. Uh, we have some more motifs that we can continue to talk about responsibility and safety. Gennaro and Hammond have a discussion where Gennaro recalls that Hammond's original plan was to breed 12 animals for the park, but Hammond impresses Gennaro by blowing his expectations way out of the water. They've got 238 animals, herds of them. This initially sounds awesome, but recall Gennaro was part of the planning, the fundraising, the pitch meetings, etc., and their efforts were to prepare a park that was suitable for 12 animals, securing a facility that could accommodate 12 animals, installing systems and parameters that were engineered, designed, and constructed to accommodate 12 animals. Yet Hammond proudly blew right on by that stop sign and went on to make 20 times that many dinosaurs. They expected 12 animals, and they instead have 15 different species, let alone a dozen critters. And yes, this is an incredible achievement, an absolutely astounding demonstration of what they can do with the power of bioengineering. But it's another example that they're being irresponsible with their power, like a child who's found his father's gun. Heroes and villains, we should continue to view Hammond as a villain. First, his sole focus is said plainly, and we can never forget the ultimate pro object of the project in Costa Rica to make money. Hammond said, staring out the windows of the jet. Lots and lots of money. And that said, his prime attention is focused on his money makers. Both the dwarf elephant and Norm Atherton are sick, but Hammond is only worried that Atherton might die before he can breed another miniature elephant so Hammond can continue fundraising. At no point is it mentioned that he was worried that Atherton himself would die before he could create the new elephant. And he's willing to overlook the collateral damage that was incurred in the process of producing his money makers. Three workers have died. Two died building the cliff road, we're told. One died as a result of an earth mover accident in January. We recognize the earth mover accident from the prologue, the butt of the raptor, as the velociraptor attack, or put differently, we know that this is a lie Hammond is telling. It's also fair to read that the other two deaths on the cliff road are probably more sinister than Hammond's letting on. And we'll get into the specifics of that assumption much later on after we've entered the park, and namely uh, the chapter Aviary on, on page 276. And I can't quite find the actual quote yet, but I'm pretty confident that Muldoon has a comment later on in the novel, much later on that is, that the raptors got out once and killed and maimed quite a few people. So perhaps there are more deaths and accidents that, than Hammond's tally in this chapter suggests, which is no surprise. Everything about the safety of this island, the aura of control, is a carefully executed hoax. Hoaxes are omnipresent. Recall from chapter the chapter called Skeleton, which is our episode 9, that Sattler warns us that the threat of hoaxes are omnipresent on page 44, and that the essence of a successful hoax was that it presented scientists with what they expected to see. As we mentioned, you can see that Hammond's efforts are not unlike the perpetration of a skillful hoax, but rather than scientists, he's showing investors what they want to see. The greater hoax that Hammond will perpetrate is that Jurassic Park is safe for the public, that they have the park under control. But in this chapter, it begins with Hammond executing a hoax on prospective investors, showing them what they want to see. The miniature elephant wasn't a result from genetic engineering, and the process by which it was born wasn't replicable. 
It was more of a fluke that Atherton achieved it at all, though it was presented as a promise to investors of greater things to come. As while the lucrative and bountiful future that will rise from this partnership between Hammond and Atherton was misrepresented, as there was no future for Atherton, he knew full well he had terminal cancer, and that was kept a secret. But it shows investors what they want to see, the promise of $7 billion in annual revenues in only 10 years' time. The Pachyderm Portfolio, a big pressure that's driving Hammond to get this park open on schedule, hence his frustrations with any delays in inspections, is that he needs to start generating revenue for his investors. This isn't explicitly reinforced in the novel, but it's definitely written into the mythology of InGen. Hammond's Pachyderm Portfolio pitch ended with a promise of $7 billion in annual revenues by 1993, only 10 years out. That's on page 60. That would put InGen on par with other $7 billion companies in 1993, like H.J. Hines, the American Food Processing Company, Deere, the American Agricultural Machinery Company, Colgate Palmolive, the American Multinational Computer Products Consumer Products Company, and Hecht Selenese, the American Technology and Specialty Materials Company. The top five businesses in 1993, to put that in perspective, were General Motors at $132.7 billion, ExxonMobil at $103.5 billion, Ford Motor at $100.7 billion, IBM at $65 billion, and General Electric at $62 billion. So he's looking to make seven. And note, recall earlier how Hammond said the, quote, secret to making lots and lots of money is to reduce personnel costs by automating. Today, the top corporation is Walmart at $572.7 billion dollars which is more than the top five in 93 combined. So if the $870 million were to grow to $7 billion, that's an increase in value of like 800%. But it's, quote, intensely speculative. There was no certainty that this plan would work at all. That's set on page 60. And it was understood there would be no returns on capital for at least five years. Read until at least 1990, which in terms of this novel is next year, next September, the deadline they're working towards. I don't recall that the financial pressure to get revenues coming in is expressly commented on in this novel, but the math and the timeline suggest that Hammond is nearing the date by which he told his investors he'd be generating revenues, and they'd begin seeing a return on investment, significant investment, and significant returns. Japan. Crichton felt that only the Japanese investors would have the patience to make a long-term investment Uh, What, 10 years? Geez, a real estate developer sits on property for decades to cash out. But okay, only a Japanese consortium will invest in this idea. That's what Crichton's telling us. In any case, Crichton has used the foreign investment, specifically Japanese investment, to make this project seem more mysterious and to explain why nobody has heard of this absolutely fantastic tale. Hammond's ironic lack of self-awareness. Twice now we've had John Hammond commenting on someone who behaves the way that he behaves, providing moments where he's ironically commenting on himself, though he doesn't really know it. It's like he has an ironic lack of self-awareness. This is just a thought or an argument I'm beginning to dream up, but let's see how it plays out. First, Hammond tells us in the chapter titled Skeleton, which is our episode 9, that he's furious with Bob Morris of the EPA, who's, quote, gone off all half-cocked, all on his own, running around the country talking to people, stirring things up on page 46. And furthermore, Hammond believes it's, quote, typical of the way government operates. There isn't any complaint. There isn't any charge, just harassment from some kid who's unsupervised and is running around at the taxpayer's expense. Here there's an irony in that 
Hammond is furious that someone might be operating without proper protocols, going about half-cocked and unsupervised when, when, when he himself is doing exactly that on his private little island. Second, Hammond is described as childlike, so far as he even dangles his feet like a child in a chair because his feet don't reach the floor. And he comments, oh, I understand kids. They get their hearts set on things, suggesting that once Gennaro's daughter was invested in her birthday party, that a trip to Isla Nublar would be out of the question because she's got her heart set on her birthday party. Hammond is just like Amanda Gennaro, the, the four-year-old, who has his heart set on something and won't be torn away from it. Amanda had the party and won't let it go, even if it means a great vacation. And Hammond has his island, and he won't let it go, even if it means saving lives. And later we'll find that Hammond is even more childlike, absent of any empathy, which could be seen as immature. He's petulant, he's commonly yelling, oh, balls, and he's cussing at people who make him upset. So here are two cases where the very types of people that Hammond is commenting on, either favorably or unfavorably, are both exhibiting characteristics he himself embodies, and he seems entirely oblivious to. Well, that was a, a quick little chapter we had. This is good. A big, 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 big thank you to Sullivan Rogers for coming on the podcast today. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview with him. Really special to have him come on. He was very excited to be a part of it. I can, can tell you he was really excited. And he, he tried his very, very best. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from him today. I want to sign off today thanking you also for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. And we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages... Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or you can find me, I'm on Twitter, at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.